0: This episode of No Quarter is sponsored by the Underground Retrocade. You love these games, and the way you want to play them is on the original cabinets. You want to see the side art, you want to feel the controls, and you want to hear Salt and Pepper on the stereo. So if you long for those days when you take a quarter and push it into an arcade game, then head over to the Underground Retrocade, 121 West Main Street, West Dundee, Illinois. I'm Carrington Vanston
1: and I'm Mike McGinnis
0: and this is no quarter the classic arcade podcast or so they tell me
1: that's what I keep hearing (laughs) the voices
0: the voices they tell me to podcast (laughs) how you doing Mike
1: I'm doing all right Carrington and you good
0: it's only been a very short time since we last
1: recorded yeah about 48 hours I think yeah um, which is really all I needed to decide that this game sucks. You're so wrong. <laughs> uh, we
0: were talking off Mike, and I thought Mike was was kidding, was making like a, a big joke that he didn't like this game because I love this game.
1: I could not tell if you were being being sarcastic or, or what, and I don't. I'm sorry, I don't understand. I'm still not convinced we played the same game. <laughs> I, we must not have. This is terrible. So yours had the elevators and stuff in it? Maybe you don't like any game with
0: elevators. Elevator action Maybe. in this game. Maybe that's it. <laughs> is it that just... Do you have an issue with elevators? I must, yeah. But yeah. yours had elevators, right? And conveyor <laughs> yes. belts? Yes, Like, we definitely yeah.
1: played the same game? We, we certainly did play the same game. That's crazy, man. Yeah. Anyway,
0: we'll get to it. But uh, this will be a show in which Mike is wrong. Brace yourself <laughs> for it, listener. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Won't be the first time.
0: <laughs> so, so wrong. Or the last. <laughs>
1: so, uh, shall we do feedback? Uh, do we have any in the two days since we've, we have last did this? We have a little bit. Okay. We have a tiny little bit of feedback. Let's see right. who, who fed us some back
0: in the last, basically yesterday. Uh-huh. Um, oh, Paul wrote to us. Paul wrote, He's written in before, Paul Code. He says, I really enjoyed the Joust show. There are some additional things you cruelly neglected to mention. First, Joust figured prominently in the novel Ready Player One by Ernest Cline. Anyone listening to No Quarter would enjoy it. The novel, that is. It is full of retro goodness so i'll pause the email there for a second mike did you read that novel i did did you like that novel let's move on you didn't like the novel you don't like that do you like anything that's good <laughs> <laughs> you're dead inside dude it was a
1: wonderful novel
0: oh good because i thought it was a totally wonderful novel i it. it. i
1: was i convincing when i said that
0: you were totally okay. convincing i'm going to just believe that you are
1: smart that way <laughs> I, I just—that's just an ugly can of, of of viewer hate mail worms that I'm not about to open. My so.
0: goodness, wow. ah, where's where's the joy in your heart, dude? I thought Ready Player <laughs> One was fantastic. I read it, then I listened to the audio version, uh, narrated by Will Wheaton, and it was really good cool. too. Uh, I recommend either version. I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. Anyway, uh, to get back to Paul's email, he writes. Second, there were also ports for the Game Boy, my current Joust platform, and PS2, Xbox, PC, in the Midway Arcade Treasures, which is his next Joust platform. Once again, I have no idea about next week, so I'll guess Tailgunner. Well, Paul, you're wrong. <laughs> you're, you're right about the ports that we forgot to mention, so thank you for bringing that up. You are very right about Ready Player One. Do not listen to anything Mike says in this entire episode, but you're wrong about Tailgunner. So there, two out of three.
1: three hidden keys open three secret gates ready player one by ernest klein
0: let's move on shall we we shall then we got email from a doctor our fellow podcaster doctor Stephen steven wyrick hello steve mm-hmm. he wrote to say in fact i think he wrote us last week maybe this will be an, uh, a session we do every week we read something from steve <laughs> he wrote wanted to comment on this week's game joust like you two this is a game i've played many times over the years but i've never really gotten good at nevertheless i do keep coming back to it when i can play it what really got me interested in this game back in the day was what i saw when a very good player was playing it he was playing on that original ROM and had learned of the pterodactyl bug. So, so he make wasn't ha- watching us then. <laughs> no. Good player. No. He was watching somebody who was actually good at the <laughs> game. So he says, to make it happen, he had played through to the level where there were no platforms left other than the middle one and killed all the other ostrich riders except one, which he had lured into being caught by the hand that reaches out of the lava. He would then land on the middle platform and wait. When enough time had passed, the pterodactyl would appear from one side to the other and head right for the player the beauty of this setup was that if the player was facing the pterodactyl as it came at him it would hit him right in his jousting lance (laughs) that sounds painful (laughs) all that was then needed was to change his ostrich rider so it was facing left to right and back again hitting the pterodactyl over and over again and racking up lots of extra lives you couldn't just walk away you had to pay attention to which direction the pterodactyl was coming from and then turn to face that way There was one or maybe two times over the years that I was able to duplicate this trick. Although I would get excited, instead of turning, I would start walking and I'd mess it up. (laughs) So I didn't do as well as that master player I watched great game and thanks for talking about one that was not crazy obscure we actually got a couple of other people ready to say hey you're talking about a game i've actually heard of <laughs> so we occasionally do talk about games people have heard of now and then and i think we had mentioned the um the pterodactyl bug but i think uh, steve gives us a sort of a better overview of exactly what the bug was and mm. how to how to implement it
1: yeah
0: i never got I, I couldn't do it i think i think i was playing on the fixed rom though that's my going to um, be my excuse. sure that that'll be your, your mm-hmm. excuse, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Did you believe me?
0: Was my excuse, uh, did it sound excusy?
1: I believed you as much as you believed me <laughs> when I said I liked that novel. It's such a good novel. <laughs>
0: it's so wrong. In fact, well, now pause while I read you bits of the novel. <laughs> Chapter no. one. Once upon a time, Mike didn't like good games. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, that's all our feedback this week. <laughs> So, well, by which I mean that's all our feedback from yesterday. (laughs) What do you want from me? I had one day, and I also had like 30 seconds to look through my email to to spot things. So that's what I spotted before we are recording.
1: Uh, We do have a a piece of news that's rather interesting. Uh, I'm interested in interesting news. Lay it on me, bro. You like today's game, so you don't deserve it. (laughs) Actually, it ties in with the... Uh, one of the themes, the topics that we'll be talking about today, the mm-hmm. Strong Museum of Play mm-hmm. uh, has acquired uh, 25 years of Atari coin-op history. Uh, this new collection spans from 1972 through 1999. Includes over 1,500 pieces of artwork, advertising materials, hand-drawn schematics, and unreleased game uh, unreleased game source code for things like uh, something called Maze Invaders, which was created by Ed Log, who also made uh, Super Breakout, Asteroids, and Gauntlet. Apparently, two of those units actually do exist, but they never made it out. This was announced on pretty much all of the, the all of the popular game sites around the web. I'm reading from <laughs> I
0: missed it completely, so I'm <laughs> glad you were reading this list.
1: <laughs> Let's see. Uh, yeah, okay, so Polygon.com has a more involved report here. Um, it said uh, they've acquired the source code to virtually every coin-op game Atari ever made. Uh, Atari, Asteroids, Missile Command, Centipede. Test, uh, test market reports, focus group results, um, 22 pallets of material. Bought 15 years ago by a collector in California and just now trucked all the way to Rochester, New York. They plan to uh, exhibit the the crown jewels. They don't say exactly what those are. I'm sure they're still going through all of this stuff. Uh, this was um, bought when Midway uh, acquired Atari and shut it down in 2003. A man named Scott Evans, who worked in electronics, recycling and salvaging, bought the material from a liquidation sale. He's, uh, he recognized the importance of it when he saw that people were tossing this stuff out. Uh, Evans kept the material in storage for years, and um, um, and his, he, apparently he's donated to them before, so they knew they were dealing with a reliable source. And and the the one thing that, that really caught my eye here, they don't talk about it in this particular article, I... We're gonna, I'm gonna veer off topic here just for a second. I promise we'll we'll get back to it. We'll veer on um, back. <laughs> they have uh, um, mock up art and plans for some for a game that's uh, for a game called Speeder Bike, which is based on the the forest uh, the forest mood of indoor speeder bike chase from, from Return of the Jedi. Which, if I had to pick any visual sequence from the original trilogy of Star Wars movies that, that really caught my eye and and appealed to me more than anything else. It was, it was that sequence Um, that like as, as a young boy growing up in the eighties and as, as every young boy growing up in the eighties had their, their, I had my, my favorite um, Star Wars toys. The one that I wanted most Uh, up until that point had been the land speeder from the first movie. Uh, And then I just had to have one of these speeder bikes and begged my parents and pleaded, can I have one for christmas and of course I never got one um, I liked this sequence so much that I at one point was planning to maybe see if I could do an Apple II game it, it was it would, it would be like a sort of an into the screen with the trees flying by and you would shoot the the the, the stormtroopers as they try to shoot you and it didn't take me long to realize that the Apple II uh didn't have the capability to uh, render the game uh, in a fashion that that I would that I would have deemed acceptable. And even if it did, I didn't have the programming chops to make it happen. But um, now you are announcing, <laughs> <laughs> but now I'm going to know. Uh, so that game, like if there were, uh, it doesn't look like any of these cabinets were ever made and it probably never got past the planning stages, but, uh, Oh God, I would want one of these. So, so, so much. I would, I would sell the neighbor's kids to get one of these <laughs> <laughs> back on topic. Um, yeah, so so this is a huge uh, a huge collection of Atari material um, and it's, oh wow, 2,800 videos on uh, Betamax and VHS. Oh, I hope they put those out there. I'd love to see that stuff.
0: Absolutely. Hopefully, um, maybe some of this stuff goes over to archive.org.
1: Yeah, something. Um, there's nothing worse than reading about seeing this stuff and and it never actually makes it out anywhere. There's
0: another collection of VHS and Betamax tapes we were talking about on the RCR podcast a few weeks ago, something like 70,000 cassettes or some ridiculous number that are going to be digitized for archive.org. And one of the issues, of course, is those are things that get read in real time. So if you've got you know, 26,000 cassettes that are all an hour, it'll literally take 26,000 hours just <laughs> to digitize them, um, just to play them, basically. So that's one of the, the downsides of those old analog cassettes.
1: Or you get 26,000 v- VCRs and it takes oh, you an hour.
0: Exactly. It takes you an hour to go run around and put all the
1: money in. <laughs> okay, everybody hit record.
0: No, I meant play. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs>
1: Wipe them all out. Um, (laughs) All at once. I wiped them all in an hour. Yeah. So this is very exciting, and and I hope that that more than just a couple of things end up being accessible to people who are into this stuff. I'd love to see the source code. I'm mostly excited about that. That would be fantastic. Yeah. So having said that, uh, today's game is also an Atari game. It is. It is Cloak and Dagger from
0: Atari 1984, I think. Cloak and Dumber. <laughs> now, I'm a little confused about whether this game was based on the movie or the movie was based on the game. Or as far as I can tell, they kind of were co-developed.
1: Have yeah. you been reading about the background to this? The stories, uh, the stories seem to vary a little bit from site to site, from mm-hmm. what I've read. But I, I think what happened was the game was being developed independently of the movie, and they—I I forget whether. Um, the movie people found out about the game or Atari found out about the movie, somebody approached somebody else and said, we're kind of doing what you're doing. Why don't we combine forces and, and you make, you put our characters names uh, into the game and and the plot stuff. And, and in return, we will, we will put Atari stuff all over our our stupid movie. And, (laughs) uh, uh, and everybody was happy except for the people who had to sit and watch this.
0: (laughs) Now, in the last uh, 2 days since we picked this game, did you rewatch the movie? I try to. <laughs> I am currently watching and quite enjoying the movie, so and I seen it as a kid, I'm sure I did, but it feels really new to me. I don't really remember it that well for some reason. I guess it's just been so many years since I've seen the film. So I've been watching it. Um I'm a part way through, and what I've liked best so far, I think the best reason to watch this movie, is there's at least one scene I've seen so far that takes place in a hobby shop and it's full of old like nineteen like nineteen eighties period. Um, Dungeons and Dragons modules and things all around. <laughs> Just to look in the background of that store and wish I was in there now shopping made it worth
1: watching the film. Now is that is, is that Morris's store? I don't know. Um, okay, so briefly, the the movie is it's it's um, it stars uh, it stars the kid from ET, yeah, Henry Thomas and Rob O'Hara. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, and then Henry Thomas plays what Elliot. Would be doing, I guess, after E.T. went home because it's the same character, kind of. And. Are you saying that he didn't have great acting chops <laughs> and he wasn't
0: bringing subtle nuances to every role? Uh,
1: I thought he did a wonderful job in E.T. Um, he just seemed to play the same character again in this movie. Not that that's a bad thing. He was, boy, he must have been like 10 or 12, could have right. been more than that. So. He was 35. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He was like Michael J. Fox. He's playing teenagers when he's 50. You know? Exactly. Uh, and And. And the character Davy, I think that's what his name was yep uh Davy has an active imagination, his mother has died, and his father is struggling to to deal with having to suddenly be a single a single widowed father and there's there's several actually kind of touching scenes where they sort of deal with her the grief of of her death um and it, his father is a very flawed human character, and to compensate for that uh Davy's realization and not wanting to face that his father is, is human and has these problems has created this alter ego for his father as an imaginary friend called Jack Flack. Yep. And then he later became a podcaster. That's right. And Jack Flack played by Dabney Coleman is a, a super spy and he runs around the whole movie in this, this unbelievably awesome uh, leather jacket with these (laughs) huge wide lapels and big shoulders and kind of a tight little waist (laughs) and man, I want that jacket. (laughs) And he gives Davey, um advice, uh, life advice on how to deal with the adventure that he goes through in this, uh, in the movie. And, and it's about Davey kind of coming to terms with his mother's death and, and growing up and uh, we won't spoil the ending for you.
0: Yeah, because I'm just watching you now. Don't spoil it for me.
1: <laughs> so a big part of the game is the MacGuffin is, is this Atari 5,200 cartridge that, that contains a game called cloak and dagger. And in, in the movie, uh, there there are are um, U.S. government top secrets uh, documents stored on the doc, on the cartridge that can only be accessed when you reach one million three hundred thousand points or something like that. Um, and the cartridge falls into Davy's hands, and it's about him um escaping from the bad guys that are chasing him to to get that back. Um, and because of this cross promotion thing that that uh, Atari had going. Uh, With the movie production company, um, there is Atari stuff everywhere. Everywhere you look, you know. I noticed that as well. (laughs) You know, there's, there's like, there's in in the middle of one of those touching scenes, for example, Dabney Coleman turns and he's kind of over uh, on the right half of the screen, and on the left there's a big Joust poster for (laughs) for Atari Twenty Six Hundred and stuff like that, and and there's a character, the the super smart hacker or whatever, um, named Morris. and he has uh, a a computer shop that is an atari shop and um there's a fifty two hundreds and there's an eight hundreds and um and the irony is of course that this game
0: didn't actually get released on the fifty two hundred but it did come out as an arcade game, but it did this cartridge <laughs> did not come out contemporary to the film
1: yeah so the in in fact uh you see you see um Davy and I think several other characters play this game throughout the movie, and what you're actually seeing is is uh, the the arcade version being pumped through the screen. And what's fun is that. Well, it looks like Davy's
0: playing. It was actually creator Rusty Daw or Russell Daw who was playing off screen. So they would have the monitor in front of the kid. So the kid would be facing the screen and you'd see the reflection of the kid's face in the monitor, but off to the side playing like with his hands on the control panel, but looking over his own shoulder down at the monitor was the creator of the, the video game. He did the actual playing and he says it was very difficult to play that way.
1: Yeah, so the, uh, the movie was actually, um, I'm reading this from atariprotos.com. I have a big article on the game and the movie tie-in. In 1984, Universal Pictures released a movie called Cloak & Dagger. Although the game cartridge shown in the movie looks like a real game, it is in fact a fake. The real home port had not been started uh, by the time the movie was filming, so they created a mock-up cartridge shell to use. Uh, when the game had to be played, they piped in screens from the arcade game to the television, as you said, being played by the game's creator, uh, it looks like <laughs> the, he's got a, a picture of the the, the Atari, the Atari of Morris's Atari shop, and uh, there's uh, boxes for games that were never released, like Battlezone for the fifty two hundred, Tempest for the fifty two hundred, uh, Tempest to the, for the twenty six hundred, um, and a bunch of other stuff that I, I guess that uh, um, I guess that Atari was hoping to promote and never got around to when the fifty two hundred flopped.
0: Very interesting. Yep.
1: I know that the movie itself, because this
0: came out at a time when there were lots of movies to do with, with ar- arcade game type things, and it was actually released for a limited time initially as a double bill. It was tacked on with Last Starfighter. So in July of 1984, you would see Last Starfighter and Cloak and Dagger. And then Cloak and Dagger got its own solo release in the next month in August. But the trial release was a double bill with that. And Last Starfighter. Is awesome. That's all I have to say about this. Of course, you probably don't like it, because you don't like anything good today.
1: I loved (laughs) the last Starfighter. I think you're lying that you do. Um, The original game, I guess, they were going to use Donkey Kong, and and they changed it after Universal approached them.
0: Oh, interesting. So it would have been a Donkey Kong cart instead.
1: uh, And the... It says the, the original name, the original game was going to be called Agent X. Uh, Agent X. They also changed that to match the movie title. Uh, it, there is. It's funny. I, I don't know if you've watched this far into it yet, but there's actually a scene where Jack Flack calls himself Agent X in a previous mission. And I guess that, that's a reference to what Atari was going to be calling their game. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. Me, man. You're the rest of me. It started as a game. Now they are playing for keeps trying to kill us and the only person who believes in it is a legendary agent named Flack Cloak and Dagger rated PG. starts Friday at select theaters check newspapers for locations
0: and then there's the game itself <sighs> it's Awesome. So the plot of the game is that Dr. Boom has stolen secret plans from Agent X and playing as the agent, you as Jack Flack, you've got to enter Dr. Boom's underground bomb factory and retrieve those plans while you avoid explosives and forklifts and robots and acid pits and giant eyeballs that shoot death rays. I mean, there is nothing not to like here. The plot thrills me. Pretty awesome premise, right, folks? It is a pretty awesome premise. (laughs) And it's a pretty awesome game. You're wrong. There's conveyor belts everywhere, and you shoot stuff really fast. It's a dual joystick game. So it's a game where you're using one joystick to move, one eight-way joystick to move, and another one to shoot. And it also has a button, I guess, for your third hand. (laughs) And that button is the um, the igniter button. When you're close to the bomb there's a big bomb in the middle of every single level and when you're close there you can set off the igniter and then race off the level if you don't want to wait for the bomb to go and then you get a whole bunch of bonus points so when you're when you're feeling uppity you can like launch the bomb yourself and, and, <laughs> and go running. And you actually can try to outrun the explosion it's not an instant explosion, it's explosion every time the bomb goes off from the middle of the screen. So if you have enough of a head start you can make it off the the level, sort of being chased by the wave of flame. I really like that feature.
1: Cloak and Dagger suffers like for me, I think, because I only had two days to play it. And you you start the game, and it you know that it I guess was designed. The arcade version was designed to look like an Atari home game, and, and that kind of bothered me. You know, the, the sound effects were very much the stuff you would hear from a twenty six hundred, and the blocky, kind of ugly graphics that you get from the 2600, at least compared to the arcade games uh, of the day, which looked a lot better and sounded a lot better. Um, and the screens are just littered with stuff. There's so much going on. Um, it was confusing. And, and I, um, I I sat and watched the, the attract screen where it kind of talks about what you have to do. And that helped a little bit. But there's just a lot of junk on the screen that, that – that Distracted me from from having a good time because I'm I'm trying to figure out well what's that doing what's that doing oh you're dead you know um, yeah it
0: kind of reminded me um, when I first started playing it it reminded me of Robotron partly because of the two joysticks and partly because just like Robotron. Most levels are a fairly large, relatively open arena, but just littered with things, some of which you've got to shoot, some of which are going to try to kill you, some of which you've got to pick up, some of which you've got to not touch. So just like in Robotron, which I'll sometimes be shooting everything and go, what, what, where are the people that I'm supposed to pick up again? Yeah, <laughs> like it's, like, it's sort of the same feeling going on here, which is interesting because in um, an interview with the creator, uh, Russell Daw, he said that this game was really created as his salute to Robotron. So I think that's uh, somewhat intentional. Um, and uh, it was his, his wife at the
1: time, Diane, was the one who did the graphics for the game. Nice. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think if I probably had, had a week to play this, I would have enjoyed it a lot more than I did. But it was just frustrating because there's so much eye candy uh, going on on the screen that had nothing to do really with what, with what you're doing. Um, I do like the fact that I, there's, what, 32 levels, and each one of them is different. I like that a lot. Well, at least um, all the ones I saw were different. I yeah. certainly didn't see thirty-two. <laughs> uh, yeah, there there are thirty-two levels. They're they're all different. Um, I liked the I, the I did like the Robotron sort of feel and kind of like you're trying to get from one side of the screen to the you know you start on one side of the screen as the entrance and you, your ultimate goal is the exit. But and you can just run across pretty easily, especially in those first levels and get to the next one. But if you really want to get the points, you pick up you have to pick up pieces of the map that are the minefield that are kind of, they're floating around on these conveyor belts. and It's sort of a challenge to, to run and, and time it so that you step on the conveyor belt as the map is coming around or you miss it. Um so there's a lot to like here. I, I just don't think I really had time to absorb it all and and enjoy it the way I would have if I'd been playing this game for years. I don't have any really emotional attachment to the movie or the game because I didn't, I saw the the movie several years after it came out on videotape, This was in the '90s, and of course, by then um, I was older, and and it didn't the 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 child wish uh, fulfillment stuff didn't didn't click with me the way it probably would have if I'd seen it uh, when it was new.
0: It does watching the movie. It felt like a movie that I was enjoying, but only because it's resonating with me having seen it as a kid. Even though I barely remember the film, and it seems a lot of new. (laughs) I bet if you just showed this to a kid today i don't know that it would necessarily chime with them but i'm digging watching the movie and i really dug playing the game i only got to play yesterday but holy cow was i having a lot of fun and mostly because there's a bunch of little details that i really like i completely agree with you that the game feels especially us coming off a williams game this game is far less polished than a williams game would be and it has less pizzazz like the the shots you shoot aren't colorful streaky lasers like in a williams game instead they're arrows and they just go off but i wasn't really distracted by that you know the graphics aren't as nice but no big deal at least it was fast moving and i liked it and it was the little details that were entertaining me and making me laugh that really made this game resonate with me so you play this this um this agent x or, or or jack flack and i like how you're going level by level in an elevator so you get in an elevator you go down to the first level the doors open up and you enter the level and i like how between each level you have this little cut scene of you in just the elevator and the little funny things will happen like an arm will take your hat or you'll you'll sort of fan yourself because it was a really close call and what happens seems to relate to how how close a call it was when you get in the elevator with the bomb blowing up if the bomb blows up and you barely make it into the elevator. You even see streaks of red that you can see through the elevator door, like the, the place is blowing up right <laughs> behind you. And you'll sometimes kind of seem sunburned at first. And I really like those details. And I like the fact that it it also keeps up with what side the elevator is in. And I know that's a small thing, but you start on the left and you make your way to the right-hand side of a level and you get the elevator. And now you'll be in an elevator with the door facing the other way. And then you go across the level in the opposite direction and you get an elevator with the door now facing on the correct side. And I really liked that that was the case, that there's essentially two different orientations for the elevator and it keeps up with the way you enter it. That's little bits like that I really, really enjoyed. I, I found the graphics not great, but serviceable. And I never really had difficulty knowing. What was a good thing and what was a bad? I could tell the explosive bombs. I could tell which ones were the forklifts and what were the robots. None of them were amazingly well drawn. Sorry to uh, uh, Russell Dawes' wife Diane, but I don't think the graphics were that good. But I thought they were perfectly fine for the game, and they didn't distract me. And that's really all I looked for. And I found it fast moving. I found that the collision detection seemed fair for me. When I died, I believed that I was actually touched by a bad thing or something, and it was nice and fast and frantic. I get to run around and move one joystick and shoot with another one and start blowing stuff up and try to pick up the secret documents and pick up bits of the map to the the mine. And then you get to a level and it's actually got an invisible mine that gets unlocked if you've got the map. And I like that detail. And then I like how in the elevator between each level, it'll give you some text that talks about like the next level like you know you can shoot through the walls in this or watch out for this bit and I, and I like that you're sort of getting a bit of advice and that like you mentioned each level at least that i've seen so far are are different from each other so i found like i was getting a lot out of the game like every level was brand new and and, then, and the game is a, not a game i would played before so for me it was completely brand new maybe it won't wear well. Maybe if I play it a ton and I get bored with these levels, it won't be as exciting. But for now, every level was a new thing. And every time I played and I got a little farther, I got to see a whole new part of the game.
1: And I just was really digging it. I think I would enjoy this game uh, a lot more if I had more time to play it. Uh, I, like I said, I did not like the... I, just, I, I don't like walking up to an arcade game and then suddenly I'm playing an Atari 2600 game. Um, that's always kind of bothered me. Um, not the worst game we played. Uh, not the worst movie I've ever seen. Um, Carrington, was there anything in, anything interesting at all about the cabinet? Tons. First of all, if most
0: of these games didn't have a cabinet, <laughs> so <laughs> not because I'm saying that they're home machines, but because this got released at a time when the the World of Arcades wasn't doing that well. So for the most part, these were released as conversion kits. And ironically, they were released for, by Atari as conversion kits for Williams cabinets. So you could convert, like, say, a Defender or a Stargate or something like that to one of these. So I found that very interesting. I'm like, oh, okay. And the the board itself would... Or this little conversion kit wiring harness would plug in, in part... To the existing board on the Williams game and it would use that board for audio amplification so it didn't use the CPU or the ROM but it wasn't self-contained like so there was no audio amplifier in the stuff you would get from Atari you would just sort of leech on the one already built into your Defender game so that was interesting. Uh, the cabinet itself though there were a few of those made but very very few and there were basically prototypes it looks like maybe around 20 of them made it's everybody seems to have different numbers but very very small numbers were created and they were made in crystal castles cabs so because that was under production or you're know, being built at the same time that this was being developed and a few of them got seeded around 20 or so i guess got made and actually seeded two arcades with the Agent X logo still on them in, during the initial development, but then the actual cabs, and very very few of them were made, and those ones have silk screened side art that's full size. It's awesome. It even has kick panel art, like art down at the bottom. Like the entire thing has marquee art. It's got bezel art. It's got control panel art, and down at the bottom, it's got it's got kick panel art. It's a lovely looking cabinet and crazily rare. The art around the um, some of the marquee and some of the control panel art is actually hand drawn with a marker. Because again, these were basically prototype cabinets. <laughs> so not a lot of those around. And it includes a Atari Key Club label in the front. And it took me ages to track down what the heck this Atari Key Club was. So it turns out the Key Club was this, something that Atari was playing around with. And the idea was that an arcade owner would be able to sell a club membership to the patrons and you would get um a little key like a a flash prom stick basically that would have 1k of memory um or maybe a quarter of a k of memory but anyway very little memory and essentially it would just save the state of a game so games could be made that would write to this key club you would buy a membership from your local arcade and then when you played certain games you'd plug your key in And the game would start where you last let off. Oh, neat. Exactly. So now, weirdly, one of the test games for this was Cloak and Dagger. Because I guess because it's got a bunch of levels. You go down 32 levels, you come back. But I think a lot of people, eventually you good enough, you can actually do the run of this. And when you do finish all the levels down and back, I think you get a free play. So if you're good enough to do that, you may be able to play forever. Um, I'm not really sure if there's a, like I didn't get that far. So Hmm. maybe it's a bug that ends the game. Maybe it's not. Who knows? Um, But this was a neat idea. And I think like I could see that working amazingly well with something like say Gauntlet where nobody ever really got that far in. And you're, throwing all these quarters in with a quarter muncher, and at least you could get so far, want to take a break, use the key club to save your state and come back and start at that level again. And imagine a group of people all saving together. That could be super fun. Or maybe an RPG, um, like the Dungeon Dragons game we we played a couple weeks ago. Like that would be another one I think that would have been better suited for this key club. Really neat idea. Never really took off because it came at a time when basically arcades then crashed. And um, it's really too bad because I'm, I'm I'm fascinated by that as an idea, and it would have been nice if that got implemented in arcades a few years earlier because it would be neat to yeah. see what would have come of that. So I'd never even heard of it before. So how cool is that? Uh, really neat to find out about. It. So I liked it.
1: Uh, you you mentioned that uh, a few of these a few of the games were made as Agent X cabinets before mm-hmm. they, the Cloak and Dagger. It looks like one of those actually appeared in the movie. So if you want to see what one of those looks like, if you pay attention, I guess it's in the background of one of the scenes. Oh, I'll pay attention.
0: (laughs) And speaking of cool cabinets, though, Cloak and Dagger cabinet serial number one, which was owned by the game developer and was then sold to somebody else. Is now in your condo? (laughs) <laughs> no, I wish. no that'd be awesome though because yeah i would be all about having a cabinet for this um, no over at arcadecollecting.com, the fellow who's got that who had one of the other ones and then sold it when he acquired this one I'm like wow very few of these he's had two passed to him he's got coke and dagger cabinet serial number one and there's a whole write-up about it with photos and things wow. on that site so i'll have a link to that in the show notes because it's super cool now the the conversion kit Games like to buy a defender cabinet that's been converted over to one of these. Those were actually pretty cheap and they're there. It doesn't seem that hard to get a hold of them. A bunch of them have sold in the last couple of years for, you know, 200, 250. They sell a lot of times they sell for less than defender games. So if you're looking to pick up like a defender cabinet, it's probably cheaper to buy one of these and then just convert it back. <laughs> so um that's one way to go. Another way to go is there's a cloak and dagger adapter that will adapt the cloak and dagger. Conversion kit to play in a JAMA cabinet. So if you do want to play this game and what you have is a JAMA cab lying around, there's a $75 adapter that you can use to connect the wiring harness and everything and the PCB from coke and Dagger over to any JAMA cab. And the adapter itself includes the audio amplifier on the board because, of course, you won't have the original Defender cab to work as the audio adapter. So that's another way that you can, you know, play it on a, in a real machine. So we'll have a Cambridge Arcade. I think has that. So I'll I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well.
1: You know, I'm looking at a screenshot of the game and you're loving Uh, it. Well, I'm not loving it, but I I just, I figured out what it is that I don't like about it. Oh, what is it that you don't like Mr. Dead inside? (laughs) (laughs) It's ugly. Um, The cabinet or the game, the game itself. There's the pink and green, uh, with light blue background of some of the conveyor belts, and and because the graphics are so blocky, they especially when f- there's so much stuff on the screen, it's moving so quickly. These things tend can can sort of blend together, and it's it's just sort of a, an ugly mess. I do agree that I wasn't a fan of
0: the color schemes. They um it was very vibrant, and um I liked that about it. I liked the logo because it's like a dark sort of red with the big cloak and then the ampersand. Uh, white ampersand and symbol in the middle i like that but i agree that there's a lot of very vibrant cyans and yellows um and greens like right against each other in the game sometimes and they and they do kind of clash and so i found it kind of jarring Uh, on an lcd monitor i can't even imagine like on a proper raster monitor they would like basically you know you get that buzz sometimes for a monitor (laughs) i suspect this is a game that really makes your monitor buzz so i do agree the color schemes are a little haphazard it kind of feels like some of the the more gaudy sinclair games um that would be out there and i'm sorry sinclair people i do love your your computer so i'm not saying that they're all gaudy but you know sometimes they had that that really vibrant cyan and pink like oh my goodness we're going with those colors are we so well, I'll give only, you
1: that one. They were only working with a 64-color palette, which I think is probably part of the problem. they were all cyan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all just different shades of cyan. Um, <laughs> and since since I've mentioned that, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and say here that uh, Poken Dagger features two Motorola 6502 CPUs, one at 1 megahertz and one clocked at 1.25 megahertz, uh, two of the Atari Pokey sound chips, each at 1.5 megahertz, and a double... Eight-way joystick control scheme and, as I said, a 64-color palette.
0: What's funny is they, they put in two Pokey sound chips but no actual audio amplifier. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, we don't need one of those. Guess it was a way to save money. If you're going to be converting a thing anyway, you might as well just, you know, mooch off that board.
1: Sure. Why not? Um, how'd you do, Carrington? <laughs> I did better than you. I bet You did.
0: <laughs> um... So here's the thing. My best score came on level 15 or level 14. I got as far as level 15 and that's, you know, less than halfway. So it didn't really do that well, but my high score came on level 14. The strange thing was though, I was keeping track of my scores. And so the best score I ever got was 156,111. So one, five, six, one, 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 but I would frequently get to levels like 12, 13, 14 and have scores of 40,000, 50,000, 60,000. Like, so it's possible sometimes to do like three times better in the same run as you would on other them. my scores were all over the place. And so much has to do with how often you like shoot stuff versus pick it up. You seem to get a lot more points for picking up the little white cubes rather than shooting them. But I got into a habit of just shooting like constantly. Just like turn on the the, the firing hose and just like just lay waste to the level. And I think sometimes that gives you a much better score. And sometimes instead you just shoot all the things that you should have picked up. I found if I would Really be disciplined in getting to the halfway point, launch my igniter, and boot it off the screen, you get a really big bonus. So I think that probably helped a lot, too. So um, got as far as level 15. High score was on level 14. Best score was 156,111. How'd you do, Mike? Uh,
1: not nearly as well as you. Uh, I did notice, and, and this is why your scores were all over the place and mine were, too, that um, when the fuse is lit, the, 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 all, uh, your points are doubled. So any point that you score while the fuse uh, for the bomb in the middle is lit is doubled.
0: Ah, um, so, I didn't even notice that. Yeah,
1: and so I'm I'm watching and as I'm as as we're talking about this and I'm reading, uh, this actually seems like a game with a whole lot of depth. There's a lot of strategy that that can maximize how far you get into the game and, and how well you do. Um, like I said, I think this is suffering a lot because I only had a, uh, a couple of sessions with it. I, I did 78,302 points. I think that's quite respectable. Um, uh, let's see. And there, apparently there are levels where it's better not to shoot everything. You actually do better by doing that. Um, so, yeah, it, it seems like there's a lot of depth. And if I had more time, I'd probably like it more than I do. There's a lot of strategizing, I think, um that can really help you rack up the points if you know if you know when and how to get them. You're um, gonna learn to love this game. <laughs> I might. I might actually. Next week we're um, gonna come back and you're like favorite game ever. <laughs> The current uh, world record holder uh, me. is me. John- we just talked about my score. No, afraid not. Oh. Is John McAllister. He scored 1,497,744 points on April 1st, 2009. Oh, I'm missing the last zero in my <laughs> no, score. I forgot oh, yes. to mention it. Sorry. Oh, gotcha. Well, <laughs> uh, it's it's sort of funny because in, in the movie, uh, in, in order to get to the secrets of the SR 71 superplane that's stored away on this Atari 5200 cartridge, you have to play to 1,300,000-something points. So I I wonder how many people actually got that far. I I imagine not many. I imagine three. Yes. All of whom are named Flack, one of whom has a podcast. (laughs) So not not a horrible game, not a great game. Wrong. Um, (laughs) Okay. Well, let's let's see how wrong you are next week, Carrington. Oh, I'm so wrong next week.
0: (laughs) I can feel it.
1: (laughs) Well, it sounds like this. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will be back next week.
0: <laughs> yes, we will. That's a threat. Bye. You've been listening to No Quarter, the classic arcade podcast. Feedback can be sent by email to no at Monsterfeet.com, or you can find us on Facebook as No Quarter Podcast, and on Twitter, we are at No Quarter Show. You can also find us on both the Throwback Network and the Real Retro Junkies Network. All of these links, plus the show notes, are available at monsterfeet.com. And like all Monsterfeet podcasts, the original material in this episode has been released to the public domain. I didn't ask you what it sounds like. (laughs) Oh, I know this one. It's test pattern in the game. (laughs)